This podcast is a series of one-on-one interviews with a handful of artists behind the program of Bleach Festival 2018 and Bleach at Festival 2018, part of the Gold Coast 2018 Commonwealth Games. Bleach Festival is the Gold Coast's signature arts and cultural festival. In 2018, the festival program focuses on a theme of intimate encounters and invitation. Invitation to experience local and international performances. Invitation to explore the Gold Coast. And an invitation to get to know the artists. We hope you enjoy this special series. Lawrence English, what first drew you to music as a form of expression? Um, that's a very good question. I'm not exactly sure. I can tell you how I got interested in sound. When I was a kid, my father was a very keen bird watcher, and he was also a man who enjoyed great leisurely weekends. And he found a great way to combine the two of these two things together by taking my brother and I to what is now essentially like a, a, a sort of series of condos in what used to be the old Port of Brisbane. But in the 80s, when I was growing up there, uh, it was this very large, abandoned lot, like uh, essentially overgrown floodplain. And uh, we would go there every week and we'd play on this enormous uh, like black sand, mineral sand hill that was there. It's like a mineral storage area, which now that I'm looking back on it, feels like a kind of cancer-inducing environment, <laughs> but I'm still here today. Um, and Pleasantly. You know, exactly. Very, <laughs> and as far as I know, cancer-free. So he would take us to this place and we'd play and we would also do some sort of bird watching. So we'd look at different kinds of birds. There were a lot of seabirds that were coming in along the river. And basically next to this particular sand hill was a really beautiful, um, I guess, d- a depression, essentially, that was always filled with water because there was... Uh, this area was sort of between the Brisbane River proper and then there was a creek that sort of ran up the, the backside of it. And that creek would flood and it would flow onto the, the, the kind of mud there and there'd always be water in this little ditch. So there were a lot of reeds in there and there was this incredible bird uh, called the reed warbler, which for me now, you know, if, if I found one of these birds literally just want to sort of stab a knob into the back of the bird and you have the best handheld synthesizer you could ever imagine. <laughs> so it was an incredible uh, syrinx, you know, these birds have a syrinx that's just to die for. Amazing kind of oscillating tones, very rich, um, dynamic, kind of unusual sort of uh, quality to their voices. So we would always hear this bird, you could always hear it, but it was very difficult to see because it was small and brown and it lived in the reeds and the reeds were always very dense and that's where they had their, their nests and I guess, you know, that was their protection to, to be camouflaged. So my father gave us these binoculars and we'd you know, be using them and to give a child a pair of binoculars is a kind of, kind of cruel trick really because, you know, children aren't necessarily understanding the capacity of their bodies, let alone this kind of hyper-realised vision that is possible through binoculars. So after several frustrated attempts of trying to spot this bird with the binoculars, my father said to me, look, put the binoculars down and just close your eyes and listen to where the bird is. And when you have an idea of where the location of the bird is, open your eyes up and put the binoculars up. So, you know, I did this a couple of times and still frustrated. And then I, I listened very intently and uh, opened up my eyes, put the binoculars up, and, of course, I saw the bird. And it was this kind of moment where I recognised, I mean, particularly as I returned to this more in, you know, my later years, you know, I realised it's the first time I really had probably a memorable sonic experience, but also the first time I recognised the kind of implications of sound as a way of knowing the world 
You know, that there is a sensor, there are multiple sensors that we have at our disposal. We are a very visiocentric species and increasingly so. But, you know, we have this capacity to know the world in other ways. And for me, that was the first time I recognised that, but also specifically recognised the kind of implications of sound and, and space. That's interesting because for your dad, it was about the birds. For you, maybe primarily it was, but it was the sound that really captured your imagination. And, and where did it take you beyond that? Yeah, I mean, it was, I, I think what it did was just help me recognise that there is, you know, you can navigate the world in certain ways. And I mean, when we look back at the kind of history of how it is we arrived at being, you know, the kind of number one top predator on the planet, we have our ears to thank us for that, essentially. You know, that period in the very early days where at night, you know, we had, the, we had light, we had fire, but the fire only gave us light to a very small range in the evenings. And, you know, we would huddle around that fire and it was our ears that warned us whether there was a pack of wolves coming or another group of people that, you know, wanted to ransack what we have, whatever the case might be. Our ears gave us that sort of glimpse into the darkness, if you like, you know, to use, a, a again, a sort of visiocentric uh, metaphor. We learned to rely on our ears to kind of give us this extra sense, this depth, this capacity to kind of protect ourselves. And I guess as we kind of moved through and built bigger settlements and became more loud, that became less important because, you know, we were sort of, you know, animals didn't want to come near where we were because there were so many of us and we were making a lot of noise and there was a lot of light, sound. So we kind of insulated ourselves from that. But I think there's still something very powerful about the way that sound can open up the world for us. You know, I think what I find really interesting about sound is the idea that it doesn't function like light. To look at the world, light essentially, you know, unless we're going to get into kind of quantum physics, light travels in a straight line. It's a linear spectrum. So, you know, we can, I can return to your face, people can return to the, the vision, whatever it is out their window right now, or their computer screen, whatever it is that they might be looking at. They can look away from it and come back to it and still, okay, maybe there are some changes on screen or there are changes on your facial expression, whatever the case might be, but your face remains there and I can return to it. Sound does not perform like that. Sound is fugitive, it's promiscuous, it's always coming around corners, it can't move, it doesn't perform in linear ways at all. And I think the other thing for me that I really find very powerful about sound as a medium to work with is that it requires you to be present and attentive to it. So, you know, I can return to your expression, I can return to the wall, whatever it is that I'm looking at, I can return to that again and again. But the moment that I finish this sentence, one, you can make sense of it, so we understand the temporal kind of implications of sound, but two, it can never be returned to again. This particular phrasing, the, the, the way that the sound carries in this room, the way that the microphone is, is taking in the sound, it can never, ever be returned to again. So there's this kind of constant extinction of sound that I think is really both sort of harrowing and beautiful at the same time. There's a kind of poetry to that loss and the fact that all we have is this capacity to kind of keep it in the, you know, the sort of shallow grave of memory. Yeah, there's a fragility. It's a very temporal thing. It can be very elusive. For me, personally, sound draws an emotional response like no other art form. But I'm curious to know, are you seeking to create a distinct reaction from your work or is it more of an emotional response open to interpretation? Most of what I do, and particularly in the last probably half decade, most of the work that I do is about this idea of sonic affect. So I draw a distinction between the idea of affect and emotion. You know, affect is, when, I mean, when you see a, a baby or when you listen to a baby calling out for its mother, and, you know, this is... Uh, being a parent, this is something I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about. You know, the kinds of expressions that are there are incredibly rich. And they, 
in time become what we understand as emotion, whether that be desire, love, whatever the case might be. But in those early stages, there is a direct affective relation where there is a desire to have a particular kind of sensation met. And for me, when I'm making a concert, for example, or in some of the kind of installation work that I do, I'm really interested in this idea of affect, this kind of like embodiment of sound. So how it is that sound occupies the body, how it is that it affects the body, and how it is that that can trigger off a multiplicity of other things. So there may well be an emotive kind of response to the material, but there can also be something that sits, if you like, below that at this sort of affective level, you know, the kind of pre social conditioning that we understand as emotion when we say I love you or I hate you we understand those terms through a kind of social qualification they're not things that are inherent to us what is inherent is the kind of affect that sits below those things that is manifest I guess through the kind of socio-cultural overlay that becomes what we understand as emotions so when you conceptualize a piece do you have a clear idea of how you're going to create it or is it more of a process of ideas of sound evolving through experimentation I am very process driven for sure. When I meet musicians or artists that simply can pull things out of the air, I always find that incredibly beautiful and frustrating in the same <laughs> moment because I do not have that. I mean, f for me, what I'm really interested in is constructing a framework, a very tight framework ideally, and that can be a conceptual thing. You know, most of the, the last two records I've made, for example, Wilderness of Mirrors and Cruel Optimism are essentially based around a very sort of tight-knit theoretical perspective like Cruel Optimism, for example, is based on this book by this woman called Lauren Ballant who talks about this idea as a means of trying to unpack how it is we've arrived at some of the kind of geopolitical situations that we find ourselves in and how it is that we have this massive rise in trauma, you know, everyday trauma that's expressed through things like depression or mental illness. You know, you look at the rise intergenerationally of those things in the last... 30 years it's an extraordinary expression of anxiety that for me you know when you look at it at a, at a sort of broader level ties very much into the kind of expansion thing questions like precarity you know economic precarity the inability for people to be able to afford housing the inability for people to be able to have some sense of security in their every day so for me that kind of place is where the work comes from a lot of the time it's a way of kind of in some respects, unpacking it for me, you know, why is it like th this cruel optimism record I spent a lot of time uh, looking at the refugee crisis and I guess the, s the systemic causes of that crisis. So particularly I was very interested in looking at drones um, and the kind of expansion of drones, the kind of unmanned aerial vehicles and the implications of those both from a surveillance perspective but also from a kind of target acquisition perspective and what that means for the people operating that and also for the people on the ground. And there has been some really incredible studies, actually. There was uh, the Harvard Law School did one called Living Under Drones, which basically looked at the kind of affect, I guess, of these drones and the sound of the drones and what that actually meant at a sort of sociological level, like how it is that people reacted, how it was communities were damaged by something as simple as the arrival of that sound and what that sound could mean that your end could be right in front of you and you don't recognise that or you don't know. And there's a pressure and an anxiety that comes with that. So I think it's a really... For me, a really, music is a great opportunity, or sound generally, an art practice is a great opportunity to kind of ask these questions that maybe sit outside of the everyday procedure of making the work, but for me are fundamental to it. 
you're talking about geopolitical ideas and if you're an author, for instance, then you can be very specific about how you want to convey an idea. The reader might draw their, their own picture, their own visual representation of that in their mind. But for you, with sound, is it very much a case of theatre of the mind? How much of it is open to the interpretation of the listener in terms of what you're trying to convey? Sure. I think, look, for me, music, and specifically music, it's a great invitation. You know, sound is an invitational art form. You, essentially, as the listener, complete the work. You know, in whether, like, this idea of theatre of the mind, whatever the case might be, without you, the work is, is nothing. You know, and I think that's the kind of very beautiful thing about it because it you know, requires a presence, it requires a commitment, it requires you to be there with this experience. And the deeper you bring yourself to it, the richer the experiences I almost always find. So I think that part of it is, for me, a, a kind of critical point that I can move away from in some respects. I think the other part of it is that music is a great invitation for conversation, just like this. You know, that there are all of these things that can sit either side of the music. If people come to the, the record with no conception of what it is and they listen to it purely on that thing, well, hopefully there is some kind of, whether it be affective or emotive response that they have to that material. But there is an opportunity then to go deeper. And for me, that's actually the value of art is this idea of kind of opening up, if you like, the possibility for conversation. I'm not interested in the kind of didactic element of art. I think that can be really tedious. I think some people do it very well. And I don't think there's a lot of artists that do that, but there are some that are exceptional at kind of tying together a very stride of strong, you know, whether it be a text-based practice and sound or something like that. I'm less interested in that personally. I'm more interested in kind of setting up these situations that are open, but at the same time have a very sort of tight point from which they're kind of being sent out into the world. I'm intrigued by the use of space with sound and music. Often sonically dynamic works are defined by what the composer leaves out as much as what they decide to include. How do you see the use of space when you're creating a soundscape? It's interesting, actually, I think, the spatial question. I think, for me, there's two parts to that. There's space, which for me is the kind of static structural component of... Uh, an environment, so something like this room that we're in right now, probably if people listen very carefully, they'll hear the reflection of the walls and they'll get it and the um, decay on the, my S's, <laughs> which you can hear there is a, you know, a very kind of high ceiling and close walls basically th through the reflection. So you can understand, if you like, a kind of geometry of the space through the kind of articulation of the sound. I'm actually really interested in the other part of the equation, which for me is this idea of place, that as a listener, we create a sense of place from within the space. So for me, when I'm making field recordings, for example, partly what I'm doing is trying to share my listening to a place. And that place is not necessarily the entirety of the physical space. It might be a very small part of that. So if I'm in a jungle or I'm at the, you know, recording waves, for example, I'm interested in a very particular kind of quality within all of the possible qualities of that moment. So for me, one of my favorite things to do if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna like spend some time listening, which you know, I do because I think actually listening's not a given. It's like being an athlete, a weightlifter. The more you train, the deeper the capacity is for you to perform a listening. So you know, if I'm out past the breakers, and I listen there are a couple of things I've become really fascinated with the kind of high frequency breaking of that white froth 
the kind of low frequency crack or that thunder of just the, the breaking, the curling of the wave and the kind of collapsing of that mass of water against itself. And there is this kind of in-between, which is the, the water directly around your head, your body, you know, that you kind of get this much more mid-frequency, I'm not even sure what word to use, but kind of reflection of the sound against your body, you know, you as an object in the water. So I'm really interested in those kinds of situations. And when I come to make a recording, what I'm trying to do is essentially share my listening. You know, I have this... Uh, theoretical framework I developed around this kind of process which is a sort of relational listening so if I'm going out and I'm making field recordings at any point we have to kind of address two things you know there's this great author called Peter Shendi has these two very simple provocations in one of his books that he wrote and the first one is can one make a listening listen to and the second one is if you can can you transmit that listening as unique as it is so for me that is actually at the heart of my field recording practice can I make my listening listen to? And if I am going to do that, then I need to recognise, well, to do it, I need some kind of transmission device, which for me is the microphone. So when I'm out making a recording, the microphone is not going to be listening in the same way that I am. I have a kind of interior psychological listening, you know, that is about my fascination with birds or with the particular quality of the waves or whatever the case might be. The microphone has none of that. The microphone is agentive to itself. It might have a particular kind of pattern that it responds to sound with, but it has none of that psychological overlay. So for me, I'm interested in, I guess, recognising that there are two horizons of audition that exist in that moment. And the horizon of audition is essentially like, you know, unlike the horizon of vision that I was talking about before, this idea of linearity, the horizon of audition is always shifting. So right now someone's listening at home, there might be a car that drives past and it enters and exits your horizon of audition over a period of time. It's a temporal kind of horizon. So you have these two. One of them is this kind of uh, interior psychological listening that you are undertaking as a listener. And then there's this external technological listening of the uh, microphone that goes on. And basically what you're trying to do is marry those two horizons over the top of one another. And that is the opportunity where potentially the success or failure of, of a kind of, you know, the opportunity to transmit a listening might take place. For Bleach Festival, you've composed a work called Wave Fields. Can you give me the concept behind it and, again, what you want the listener to take away from that? I mean, it's an invitation to immerse themselves in this soundscape, but what do you want them to take away from it? You know, I think... The Wavefields project particularly is kind of multidimensional because it's about, it's, it is definitely about sound and listening, but it's also very much about embodiment and the relationship that we have with sound and place. And I, I, for me, it's very much about the kind of unison of these things working together. So it's a very particular experience to go and sleep on a beach overnight. It's unusual to do that. I mean, most of us don't do it in our lives without getting arrested at least yes anyway. yeah exactly it's sanctioned <laughs> sleeping on the beach it's the best but there is a kind of very particular sensation that that obviously provides that location at um, Burley is a very I mean it's an important one from an indi indigenous perspective but also from I think a, you know obviously from a social one there is a lot of history that has happened uh, in that area and today it's, you know, one of these areas that still maintains a very particular quality because of those two headlands, you know. There's this very unique geography that that has. And this particular location where Wavefields is taking place is a very sheltered space which has a, a very strong atmosphere, you know. And I think that was something that I kind of very much responded to. So basically the work is about this kind of, I guess, almost creating like a, a sonic blanket, you know, that you are inside of for a duration 
and I've spent a lot of time thinking about the ways that that sound can interact with the environment around it. You know, that's really something that is critical to consider, I think, with these site-specific works, is that there is this, you know, the ocean's not going to be quiet, for example. It's going to be there all night. But there are ways that we can use that to kind of heighten the experience of something that is durational, because it's very rare to go somewhere and listen for a long period of time. And listen in particular ways, you know, where it's not necessarily always 100% conscious. You know, I'm very interested, obviously this is a work about sleep, so there is this period always in our lives where we drift between consciousness and unconsciousness, and that grey area can last two seconds to 30 or 40 minutes, or if you're unfortunate enough to wake up at three in the morning, you can have sort of two hours of that semi-conscious sleep. But it's a really interesting time because the relation between your conscious appreciation of what is around you and your unconscious imagination work together to create a very particular state. And that is basically what I'm trying to explore, I think, in this work, is this interaction between those known and unknown capacities of ourselves. But as a composer, how do you tap into that unconscious space? <laughs> because yeah. how can you be knowing enough about what that really is? I, I mean, I've spent a lot of time, I actually did a project about uh, 11 years ago called Melatonin, which was about this idea of sound in sleep and this question of how it is that sound operates for us, how it can essentially act as a calming agent or as an interruption or as a kind of state, if you like. So, you know, a very simple example is if you have a loud fan in your room, you don't hear the fan after a while. You just have this state, this acoustic state that you sleep through very calmly because in some respects it creates an ambient noise floor that takes out those currawongs first thing in the morning or the storm birds or whatever the case might be or the possum running across your roof, whatever the case is. This is going to be a similar kind of experience. You know, there is a... There is a you know, I often hear people talking about this kind of idea of the white noise of the ocean. I don't hear it like that, but I understand how people could imagine this idea of a sort because of Because it's noise. a constant? Yeah, but it's not constant. That's what's so strange. It's, it's constant, but only in a kind of macro sense. In a micro sense, it's constantly evolving and incredibly dense and incredibly uh, complex sounding. And I think that's a really interesting thing. That's, I think that says a lot about us as listeners, how it is that we take in what is around us and our in some respects, our capacity to take in what is around us. So I'm interested in working with that idea of the kind of macro, but then having these kind of micro elements that may or may not necessarily be registered, but they're there. And a lot of the work is going to be about this kind of process of relief, where you have this overarching sensation, quality, whatever it might be of, of you in this sort of sound field. And then you have these elements that kind of rise and fall in and out of that across the sort of 12 hours of the piece. And I mean, it's, in terms of a performance piece, it's a long duration for someone to be there. I'm curious because, again, as you say, 12 hours, it's a, it's a sustained period of time to expect people to listen. And as you've said, it's very much about listening. It demands that you listen. So in that space, I'm assuming that the expectation is that people will drift in and out of awareness of the piece itself even though they might be fully conscious and that I'm suddenly there's that, a realization I'm, 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 that oh hang on <laughs> listen to that and picking up on certain motifs or whatever it might be that you've created that creates a, a hyper awareness of a particular I mean section. for me I think I look there'll be certainly moments of that but I really honestly hope that people become unconscious <laughs> for a, for at least sort of eight hours of the piece I mean I'm really 
building a, a large part of the section to be slept through. And that means creating like, in some respects, like the fan in the room or like the ocean, you know, that it's, that it's like you said before, it's this kind of like enduring thing, but there's change inside it. And it's about the balance between having elements arrive and having elements depart, but never actually having it at a point where the dynamic of yourself inside the sound is is brought kind of consciously out of something until it's time to wake up potentially and then it's about that kind of process of how it is you come out of these particular moments of unconsciousness but I genuinely hope that people uh, sleep and deeply and well during the concert I mean some of it is built specifically using certain kinds of frequency patterns to actually encourage particular sorts of sleep Bleach Festival will run from the 29th of March to the 15th of April 2018. To learn more and find out what's on, visit bleachfestival.com.au or download the festival app.